0: Hi, my name is Keith Bose, and I'm the managing director of Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources owns the Kalakera uranium mine project, which is based over in Malawi. It is a past producer, having operated from 2009 to 2014, and in that period produced about 11 million pounds of uranium, all of which was sold into the Western market. The intention behind Lotus is once the new, uh, once the prices start to increase again, we want to restart the asset back up again.
1: Keith, good to see you. Uh, Saw so you back in October. You've been you've been quite busy, um, so I wanted to a quick quick catch up. Saw so the resource uh, expansion and, and want to get into that. But first, what, what are you making of the markets at the moment? A lot going on in uh, Ukraine, and before that, I think the uranium market and period of uncertainty, all all culminating, and I think possibly Aussie investors taking some money off the table.
0: Yeah, I think it's been an interesting period. You're right. I think we have seen a drop-off in the share price of the majority of the uh, ASX-listed Uranium companies, and I think some of our shareholders have been taking some of the money off the table. But I think one of the things that probably is a little bit more encouraging is to note that even though there hasn't been a lot of activity within the Uranium spot price, we have seen that spot price maintain a range, a relatively narrow range of between about 42 to maybe 45 or 46 pounds. And that has even been on the back of spot, not actually purchasing a lot of uranium over the last couple of months as well. So, from that perspective, encouraging. But obviously, as we mentioned, some of the um, some of the people taking money off the plate at the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so so a lot of uh, negative catalysts. I mean, uranium investors for the last three years have been looking at all these positive catalysts not having an effect, and now they're being held back by. uh, some of the geopolitics going on. Well, like, we can only control what we can control. So let's talk about your projects. I guess the big bit of news for you is the increase in the uh, resource. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and maybe plans for expanding it further?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've, we've got a long term strategy in place. I mean, there's obviously all this information going all this news going on in the background, obviously, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff. In terms of what we're doing, we're still maintaining the, you know, the trajectory. We have a plan to put out our feasibility study by the middle of this year. And one of the first things that we did um, as part of that work was an upgrade to our resource. So we announced about two weeks or so an upgrade to our resource. We were able to increase that by almost 23%. So taking it from 37.5 to about 46.3 million pounds. We have dropped the grade off a little bit. And the reason for that is we actually made the decision to drop the cutoff grade. Now we've been thinking about this for quite a while. And I think some of the conversations we've had previously, where we've been talking about our exploration and how ore sorting and those types of things impact the way that we view the resources moving forward, recognising that we can use ore sorting technology as a method to increase the grade of the material that has been fed into the plant. I think with the new way that we're looking at our resource, we've come back and wrapped that into it as well. I think one of the really interesting activities we did prior to the the release of the resource was we started to look at these economic cutoff grades, and as soon as we plugged in the ore sorting concept concept into those calculations, we were able to demonstrate that a 200 ppm material is actually an economic feed grade for us to put into the plant, and for that reason, we were comfortable dropping our cutoff grade from 300 down to 200 ppm for our new resource that we've delivered. That new resource is now being used by the mining guys in terms of putting together our mining schedules and those types of things
1: so how do you, how do you expect North American investors going to look at you and go that can be economic 200 ppm doesn't sound like a lot compared to some of these North American companies are you know Putting out you know, superbly high grade uranium. So, what, what do you say to those guys? Why are you investable?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that we always, you know, why we like Kalakira when we first acquired the asset, you know, two years ago or so, was a realization that it's a very, very simple mining approach that we're taking. This is open cut mining. Now we've converted from what was, I suppose, in some way a bit of a selective mining approach that maybe Paladin took. To maintain a higher grade being fed to the plant, with all sorting now, we've actually gone in for more of a bulk mining approach. So we've dropped the mining cost significantly by going through this approach. We can now mine this material really, really cheaply, put it onto a stockpile or feed it straight into the ore sorter, and achieve the grades that are required for the plant. So as we've mentioned previously, we could take a 500 or 600 ppm material and easily take it up to a thousand or 1,100 ppms with ore sorting and then feed that into the plant. That's a very, very economic model for us to use. So it's really the simple mining technique. And If you compare that to the uh, Uranium operations in Canada, deep underground mines, really high-grade, requiring high levels of automation, the risk and the technology associated with that, Compared to a really simple open cut mine, I think that's where the differentiator is.
1: And tell me about the process, though, because you make it sound simple. It's an earth-moving exercise. We 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 put it through an all sorter. It upgrades um, what we put into the, into the mill, and you know it, it's as simple as that. But it, it can't be as simple as that, can it?
0: It is. It it is an effect. And I was down at um, the laboratory uh, last week. We were doing some more test work around the ore sorting stuff. We were putting material through the source sorter, and I was amazed when I sit there. And I'm always amazed when I sit there, and I sit in front of the control station there. And we've literally got a dial, and we're watching the results. And we say we want a bit more of this, we turn the dial that way. We want a bit more of that, we turn the dial that way. It is such a simple process once we've got it set up there. The question, of course, is how do you present the feed to the material, and we need to do a little bit of work around that also as well as how many tonnes can you put through these single units as well. So we're talking about a single ore sorting unit can probably treat about 120 tonnes per hour, so we might think of putting a second ore sorting unit in there just to make sure we can get the throughput in the systems as well. But literally, it is as simple as that from the process. It is a very, very simple concept from an operating perspective. I appreciate fully when I speak to the guys, the physicists and all that kind of stuff behind it, the actual technology that is used. To identify the characteristics of the individual rock is highly, highly technical, but once it's in place, it's in place and it works.
1: Okay, and so okay, get a second one and maybe, um, by the science are these expensive?
0: A uh, unit costs about three million dollars.
1: Right. Okay. So pay, payback relatively swift.
0: So huge dollars. So when we talk about our capital costs, I mean, I think we've always referenced this. A case of about fifty million dollars to be able to refurbish the existing plant, and then if we purchase the ore sorters, I mean, if you buy two ore sorters, that's six million dollars plus the installation cost. You're probably talking, you know, ten to twelve million dollars. So we're not talking huge dollars, and I can tell you, looking at the economic models when we run it with and without the ore sorter. Pays for itself, I reckon, in within a month or two.
1: Right. And so, how far away are you with with regards to the rehabilitation? And you know, you have got one or sort of that. Is that sorry? Have you got one or sort of that, or is that some sort of t- no?
0: We test? don't. So we're just doing yeah. We're just doing test work at the moment. So right. there's a testing facility here in Perth that we're using, which is Steinart. So that's a German company who's been developing the technology. They have a full scale unit at their facilities here in Perth, and we've been able to bring samples across from Malawi. And run them through that unit. Not large tonnages, but we're getting enough material there that we have confidence with results. And because we're using a commercial scale unit, there's not a lot of issues associated with scale up. So the unit we're testing is theoretically the same unit we're going to be installing on site in the future. You don't have to worry about scale up from bench top uh, tests and all that kind of
1: stuff. That's where I was going to go. So basically, the rehabilitation at the moment is—is where are you with that? Have you been able to start any of it? Because we've, you've got a feasibility coming out. And maybe you should talk about, start with that because the, I, I'm interested in the numbers that you're going to feed into that because it's you know, going to be things like, um, you know, clearly the, the, the capex rehabilitation, OPEX, etc. But it's also things like, and it's quite interesting when you're putting out feasibility studies at the moment, you've got inflation. You've still got supply chain issues and delays. You've got increasing costs across the board. People are a bit nervous about putting feasibility studies out at the moment.
0: I think one of the things, and this is actually a discussion that I've had with the various engineering groups that have been supporting our work so far, is that when you're looking at perhaps some other projects, perhaps a greenfield project or so, where they're seeing these really massive increases in their costs is to do with the actual equipment. So when they buy the mill, when they buy the crushers, when they buy the tanks and all that kind of stuff, when you look at our refurbishment costs, ignoring the all-sorter for the moment, our costs are more associated with labour. So we're looking at, you know, painting, corrosion control, replacing some conveyor belts, uh, doing some maintenance on transformers, maybe swapping out an agitator or two, doing some cleanup. It's more labour-related and time-related costs associated with that rather than capital purchases and i know in malawi even though there has been inflation unfortunately the malawian kwacha has actually depreciated against the us dollar quite significantly so on a us dollar perspective we're probably sitting in the same area where we were a year ago or something like that so i appreciate there is going to be some increases in costs that we're going to see over and above what we expected specifically when we start to look at first of all um, and probably uh, we bring some diesel on site and also some other things like hydrogen peroxide and all that stuff. But again, as a percentage of that total fifty million dollars, it's not probably as big as some of the other projects that have been really concerned about seeing the creep in their capital cost numbers moving forward.
1: Right. So in t- okay, cost, cost is one side of the um of of skilled sorry, of, of staffing, but skilled labor is, is another. So you've described some quite simple functions there. Are are there going to be any issues around the more skilled components of the staffing you're gonna be required? To uh, get get sorted. In
0: terms of the refurbishment, I don't think so. We've been working with an engineering company in South Africa, and they'll be providing most of the skilled staff in terms of being able to do that. And there's various subcontractors that we can use in either Zambia, Tanzania. Actually, got some really skilled labour in there as well, um, and bringing up from South Africa as well. So I don't see too much of an issue with the refurbishment side. Obviously, when we move into operations where we're looking for a staff of around 450 people or so, we've got a big recruitment drive that we need to do. We need to identify those people. We are fortunate in that a lot of the ex-employees from Calakera who were retrenched back in 2014 are still around. They've obviously moved into other jobs and roles and all that stuff. But the key ones that we are interested in have actually expressed an interest in coming back to Calakera. So we're quite encouraged by that. So we think we can bring back your core team back into the system. And we recognise for some of the other areas, we're going to have to go through an intensive training programme but that's already being considered when we look at our costs and our schedules. Okay,
1: so let's come back to the uh, timing of the feasibility study. We, we talked about a few of, the, few of the components that go into it, feed into it, but um, where are you with it?
0: So the feasibility study, uh, we've got the new mineral resource estimate, which we've spoken about. The mining guys are busy at the moment doing their uh, pit optimizations and their production schedules. We had the engineering company was on site end of January, beginning of February, doing the detailed inspections. So they stuck their heads into all of the tanks. The mill, all of their MCCs, transformers and all that, they've gone back down to Joburg now with their punch list and are putting together the cost estimate for us to be able to define what that cost is to restart the plant back up again. We've been talking to a number of uh, other contractors with regard to things like logistics, so specifically logistics for the transportation of the Yellow Cake when we produce it, whether we send that into the US, whether we send that to Canada or into Europe, we've now got an idea of what those costs uh, could look like for us. So We're pretty well advanced on all different fronts on that and we still have an intention to be able to put this Feasibility Study out by the middle of this year.
1: See, the interesting thing about you guys, obviously it's a very low um, capex regime that we're talking about here and then the opex isn't um, too bad either, Is you've kind of got these near-term producers, these developers, you're probably at the front the front of that queue in terms of being able to get into production relatively quickly compared to most of the other Uranium uh, producers out there who weren't already producing um, before this, the, the, this, this kind of recent period we've been through. Um, how does that affect the conversations that you're going to have in terms of raising capital and get getting that money um, available to you. Because one, it's not a big amount, but you like some of the bigger projects which require two, three, four, five hundred million bucks. Um, you need contracts in place. So I, I know you've got someone working on that side of things for you, but well, one. Can you tell us about a little bit about the process, and maybe a little bit about maybe any conversations you're having around contracting? Just gonna kind of cover that topic for us.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'll start off on the topic of the contracting. As you mentioned, we did appoint uh, Dr. Robert Rich, who's based over in the US as our sales and marketing executive uh, last year. He's uh, made contact and is in constant communication with probably nine or ten of the ten largest utilities in North America. So he's had the opportunity, obviously, you know, emails, telephones, but also he was present at the conference in Savannah, which happened in November, and he was also at the conference that happened in Washington in January as well. So I had an opportunity to meet these people face to face, give them a story about Lotus and where we are and where we are tracking in terms of our production plans, but also reintroduce Calakera. A lot of those uh, North American utilities are familiar with the Calakera project. They have either uh, contracted or utilized some of the yellow cake from Calakira previously, so they have a lot of confidence in the quality of the product um, also having a asset that has previously attained its uh, nameplate throughput, so you have confidence in terms of the three million pounds that we talk about also gives us a bit of a leg up in terms of dealing with these people, so they're all very, very interested in what we're doing. Obviously, they're waiting for our feasibility study to be uh, completed so that they can get a better idea of what our costs are, as well as what our proposed schedule is as well. And hopefully that'll allow us to then enter, enter into some off-market um, conversations. We have, as part of the process of talking to these various utilities, been added to their list of what they call request for proposals. So these are on-market Uh, Contracts that you look at. So on a fairly fairly regular basis, these utilities put out to their uh, list of uh, potential suppliers requests for proposals on say whatever the number is three hundred thousand pounds per annum for you know the period twenty twenty four to twenty thirty or something like that. And you have the opportunity to bid on those. We haven't actually gone through that process yet, although we are receiving them. We've always said we would like to wait for our feasibility study to be complete before we do start to participate in that sort of process. But at least we're starting to see now what the various utilities are looking for going forward. And we think that's a really, really useful piece of inside information.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going, obviously going through a process of price discovery all the time, same with the market, but will will not be willing to um, price it at. And you need to do the same thing with your, with a feasibility study. You need to work out what your economics look like, and what your incentive price needs to look like. So, so that, that, that that's all kind of good, but you're going to need a few of these, right? Because I say, you, you, although the, the project has produced before, this is effectively a, a restart and they're going to want to be certain that, the, the refurb has gone well. That it is able to produce, and you kind of get yellow cake in a can. So you're going to get lots of, or you're going to need lots of small contracts uh, initially to kind of prove prove yourself. So, are there enough of those conversations going on, or are there enough of those RFPS coming to you that you feel that you could piece enough of these together to get the funding in place?
0: So I, th- I think the way we're going to approach it is that um, so if so if we, if we assume we're going to be producing three million pounds per annum, that's sort of our target for a, a reasonable period of time within the feasibility study. We expect, in order to be able to um, deliver into contracts, we would expect to be signing six or seven contracts. I would think would be sort of the figure that we want to be able to sign. Each of those contracts is probably somewhere between I don't know two hundred to maybe five hundred thousand pounds per annum. Delivery. Now, each of them may have different timeframes associated with them. Some of them may have different marketing uh, or rather pricing structures associated with them, whether they be a straight price, whether they be market related, whether they be linked to perhaps CPI or something like that. That's part of the conversation that we need to have through the process. But I think what's important to notice, and one of the things I want to get out of the feasibility study, if I pick some numbers, okay, so say we're able to sign contracts at $60 per pound. And our operating cost is thirty dollars per pound. We need to place at least half of our material into long-term contracts so that we ensure that we cover all of our operating costs. With our remaining material that we have, we have the opportunity to either enter into short-term contracts, which maybe might not be at the price that we want, but we recognise that in two or three years' time, maybe the price has gone up, and we want to make sure we have a t- uh, material available to go into those contracts. So we don't want to commit it or overcommit that material. Or alternatively, we can have a look at the spot price. So those are the types of conversations or thinking processes we go through at the moment. And then when you talk about the financing side, and this is really really important, I think. So we're, today we're a three hundred million dollar company. Hopefully, our market cap is going to go up when we put out the feasibility study. Who's looking for something like maybe $75 million when you look at our total capex requirements? Now, that should be a relatively easy equation for anyone to have a look at. And I think we can get a significant amount of that in equity if we wanted to, and maybe only leave a small amount in the debt market. And if you've only got a small amount of capital in the debt market, we can probably get that on a fairly short term basis, you know, over two or three years or something like that. So we don't have to commit all of our production over extended periods of time to meet our debt requirements. We could actually just have a much shorter period if we wanted to, if we had confidence that the spot price or the term price is going to pick up 2 or 3 years after we start uh, production. So we're starting to have those conversations. It's not simple stuff. We need to be talking through this. We need to be talking to the utilities. We need to be getting our guidance from ourselves as a marketing executive, and we as a board then need to be making some uh, decisions to move forward
1: with. Okay. And like, thanks for breaking it down. I think it's important for people to understand the difference between spot and contract and also contract that they it's a piece of paper. It's agreement to, you know, from one party to another. There are multiple ways that, uh, and conditions that can be assigned, um, to, to that. So appreciate breaking that down. Just if I, if I look at the market at the moment, um, Obviously, everyone 's waiting for the the the, the price to move, so the market is looking for the price to move. you know I think retail investors look at spot as the the arbiter and the indicator for w- if things are moving positively forward. you guys you know tend to talk about contracts because that 's how you can secure um, the funding kind of component, but there's also I think an expectation that there's going to be some kind of roll up. There's going to be a bit of M and A in the, in the space because you've got this kind of balance between, uh, development projects like you see in Africa, which are, you know, much lower grade, but, you know, large, um, and, you know, large production, uh, numbers on an annualized basis versus the kind of North American stories, which tend to be either high, super high grade, but, Deep underground and with permitting and licensing issues, to, you know, perhaps delaying those things. You've got some former producers in the US talking their game, but these are these are small. Well, producing sort of around the mil, a million million pound a year mark. Do you think that there's going to be a bit more M A, a few more roll ups um, this year or, or next, or is everyone still in the same boat of? it's a little bit too early to be kind of stretching yourself by uh, having to raise capital to do something like that?
0: Uh, I think this year is going to be an interesting year from m as I think there will be some more activity. Obviously, there were the 2 big deals last year with the Zaga and uh, UEC and or Encore and then with the Uranium One deal as well. Um, we also know that um, with Vimy as well, uh, there was also that offer made for Vimy as well. I think there's going to be some more stuff like that coming out this year. I think consolidation is certainly on um, certainly in everyone's sight at the moment. I think. Everyone's, I think so. <laughs> I think there's some opportunities out there that people will be looking at.
1: Right. No. I, I, everyone, I was looking at you when I said everyone. I was just I was just I was just checking because obviously the nearer you get to um, you know the the construction phase, and the nearer you get to some of these contract conversations, actually com- coming. I, mean, good. I just wonder what the ambitions for uh, Lotus were.
0: I mean, at the moment, I mean, we've stated and we will continue to say that our intention is to bring Kalakira back online again, and that's 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 my mandate from uh, from the board. Bring Kalakira back online again at a at a time that um, I suppose we want to make sure it's profitable. We want to make sure we're getting the right prices for it, and our timing will always depend on that. But it's certainly our intention to bring that back online again. I think there may be some opportunities to have a look at some other things. Um, You know, even just general exploration. I mean, there's some real good exploration potential, perhaps in parts of Africa that maybe haven't seen the attention, uh, the uranium attention, maybe uh, that some other areas have seen. I still think Malawi is very, very richly endowed with mineralization. I think there's still a potential there for us to do, you know, Internal growth in terms of our resources. What about Tanzania? Is another interesting one, one as well. I think there's some real opportunities out there. And even though we are focused on Kalakari making sure we bring that back online again as efficiently as possible, we will always be aware of what's going on around us.
1: Right. Okay. Well, look, maybe that's a conversation we we, we we can come back to. Um. So you, I'm just, just trying to think of the with, with regards to. Where, where you're at today, the, you've got enough money to take you to the completion of the feasibility study, have you?
0: Correct, yes. Right, we've okay. got $13 million available to us now. So that's Australian dollars available to us now as of the end of the December quarter. So that's more than enough to see us through the exploration work we've still got left, obviously, our corporate overheads, um, our care and maintenance work that we need to do, and our study work as well. So there's more than enough dollars available at this stage
1: right okay, and because i and what you mentioned it there obviously with with, with um i think vimy situation um you know and and what um deep yellow was 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 trying to do there um it was that that didn't kind of work out and I, and do, do you think that the your own companies in Australia are actually going to um be big be given the licences, be given given the given the, uh, the permits that they need to move things forward. As I mean, how's Australia? How's the Australian government or the various states um, treating uranium companies? Just out of, just out of interest.
0: Yeah, I think in Western Australia was obviously there was a number of um, permits that were provided to I think it was four or five uh, uranium companies about five years ago or so, and it's really only Vimy that's been able to meet the required goals moving forward. But I do believe the Western Australian government is supportive of Uranium mining, and I think there may be an opportunity for those other companies to renegotiate extensions to their timelines. Obviously, South Australia has always been very, very pro-Uranium, uh, they've had Olympic Dam there, that has been a long-time producer, they've had Beverly and 4-Mile Well, and of course there's Boss Resources there as well. I think getting a Uranium project up and running in South Australia is relatively simple. Uh, Northern Territories have also been also very pro-Uranium over the years, obviously with Ranger, Um, and there's a lot of exploration potential up there as well that a number of companies are looking at. I think uh, the Northern Territories are a potential area for new Uranium mines as well. Yeah, I think it's, as you see in the rest of the world as well, maybe 2-years ago or so, I think if anyone had mentioned the word Uranium, you would have got a strange look and, you know, what are you trying to do to us and all that kind of stuff. But I certainly think over the last 12 months or so there's been a, a radical shift in the public's opinion of what uranium can do uh, for the world in terms of uh, net carbon emissions and all that stuff and i know when i speak to my kids and their friends and all that kind of stuff and they're in their you know late teens early 20s and all that they certainly have no concern about uranium power or nuclear power they see that as the way forward for the world they see i mean coal fired power stations are on their way out, and uranium was the way to go forward, in their opinion. And I think that's great. And I think Australia's been dragged along by that. I think the the young people that are coming up now, they don't have these issues that perhaps some of the older generations do have about uranium. I think that's going to be reflected in the politicians moving forward.
1: Well, well, I think it has been recently in the, in the EU. I think gas and nuclear included in the EU taxonomy, um, and I think that's going to be. Uh, amplified with recent developments, as, well as recent as an hour ago, Keith, uh, where the German Chancellor has announced that there will be no Nord Stream two uh, gas being switched on anytime soon, given what the the recent occurrence, uh, recent events in uh, coming out of Russia suggest. So, I think the the issue of uh, energy independence by the different European states will uh, come into sharp focus. Uh, politicians have got some decisions to make there and quite frankly, uh, some investment um, to to do that because these things don't happen quickly and they're not cheap. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few weeks and months.
0: Yeah, France has been very bullish over the last 2-months or so in terms of their announcements. I mean, they announced 6 new reactors to be built and then they re- Double down, I suppose, and set another 8 on top of that, so 14 potential reactors to be built in France before yeah. 2035, 20, I think the date was there.
1: So yeah. that's yeah.
0: It's very, very encouraging. And you've got all the activity in Eastern Europe as well. I mean, there's a lot of discussions in Eastern Europe about new nuclear reactors. Turkey's obviously building as well. Egypt is not talking about putting in reactors, so it's certainly a growing area.
1: Yep. Polish doing deals with the US for SMRs. It's, uh, it's 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 interesting times um, across Europe. A few outliers like um, Germany, which should be interesting once the gas is cut, cut off to them, uh, as to how they solve that problem. But again, a topic for another day. Keith, um, great. Ca- oh, sorry, no, I tell you What we haven't talked about? Livingston. Hi, yeah.
0: mm, Liv- Livingstonia. So, uh, I yeah,
1: Doctor Livingston, I So
0: that was the new tenement that we acquired last year. Mm-hmm. Um, The intention behind that was obviously to go and drill it, and we've been down there. We've done all of our drilling at Livingstonia. The drilling there has been completed on that area. Um, All the samples have been sent down to the laboratories in South Africa for assaying. Turnaround time is somewhere between five and six weeks, we're seeing at the moment. So, probably the end of March, I think we'll be able to report to the market some of the results that we've got from our Livingstonia drilling. And the intention at Livingstonia is certainly to take those results and be able to do an updated resource for Livingstonia, which we can then add on to our new Calakera resource and come up with a global resource for the company. So, we're excited about that. Also, really good for us as well, when the geologists were down at Livingstonia, they identified an area which is, I suppose, northern Livingstonia, you might call it. It's got a very, very similar signature to what we're seeing at Livingstonia. They've called the area Cholumba now. So we've actually got the drill up at Chulumba now drilling as well. Uh, we're just doing some basic exploration work at the moment there, probably putting down 10 to 12 holes. Uh, that'll be finished by the end of next week or early the following week. Get those samples, send them off assays as well, and be able to report back to the market on whether we've got something there as well. So some real good news flow coming out from an exploration perspective over the next two months or so from, uh, from uh, Lotus.
1: Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll catch up on Livingstone. Was that named after Dr. Livingstone? I have no idea. You never know. Well, he died in Zambia, so probably unlikely, but uh, what a lovely yeah. thought. Um, right. Uh, let us uh, let's stay in touch. Um, you know, let us know how you're getting on, and we'll speak to you soon.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much. Good seeing you again.